You know, we are in uh, week five of our series titled Jesus First. And uh, over the last four weeks, Pastor Steve has taken us through the first 23 verses of Colossians chapter 1. And I hope that, uh, I hope that you're actively participating in the 50-day challenge. Um, you know, Pastor Steve gave us in week one a challenge to make weekend worship a priority, to participate in a small group, to memorize a, a verse each week, and to listen through the Jesus First CD. And out there in the lobby, there's a Jesus First display table that you can uh, buy your CD, pick up the memory verse, uh, you can get a t-shirt. But also, there's something new uh, out there on the table this morning I just want to tell you about. It's uh, uh, Janet Fireball created a daily personal Bible study guide for the book of Colossians. So you can pick this up for free. It's out there. And it'll help you as you go through, uh, continue to study through Colossians. Uh, pick that up. And if you are um, not yet in a small group, make sure you contact Pastor Jay because there's plenty of time to get into a small group. He'll be happy to connect you with one of the regular groups meeting or any of the 15 or so new groups that have started recently. So just get in touch with uh, Pastor Jay and he'll be happy to connect you. Now this 50-day challenge that Steve has uh, given us is to put Jesus first in every area of our lives. Not just first in priority of a long list of things I've got to do today, but to make Jesus first in every area of my life. To recognize that He is Alpha and Omega, right? He's the beginning and He's the end. He's the first and the last. He's the foundation of all our priorities. Jesus isn't just part of my life. Jesus is life. And so as we've been going through uh, Colossians chapter 1, a couple weeks ago we came across a passage in verses 15 and 19, I think, that Paul wrote that is really the heartbeat and essence of all we believe. Because Paul said that Jesus Christ is the exact image of God. He is the exact image of God. That He's the creator of all that is. And that Jesus holds everything together. I mean, think about that. Every atom in this room right now is being held together by Jesus Christ. I can't, I can't even comprehend that. Can you? The Bible says that He holds the entire universe together. And so Paul, he was writing from prison, and he wrote those magnificent words about Jesus to the church in Colossae. And if you remember, uh, Steve has told us a couple weeks ago that there was false teaching in that church from a group of heretics called the Gnostics. And these, these teachers were saying that Jesus was one spirit equal to all the other spirits out there. And that it took more than just Jesus to save you, to bring you into a relationship with God. Well, Paul wrote the letter uh, to the church in Colossae to straighten out this false teaching. And Paul says that Jesus isn't just one spirit among other spirits, but that Jesus Christ is greater and far beyond anything else we can imagine. He's not like anything. He is totally unique. Jesus is God. Amen? He's ordained by the Father to rule the church, 
to rule the world, to rule the universe. Jesus is God. You know, the Bible emphatically states this over and over again, that Jesus is God, that He's able to save. He's the focal point of all time and creation of all of our knowledge. And this is true whether we accept it or not. It's the truth. Jesus is God. And then Paul went further to say that not only is Jesus God, but He has the power to reconcile us to Himself. He's the one that gives us a relationship with God. Allows us to have that connection to God. He wrote, You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Can you identify with that? You have now been reconciled to God. We were enemies of God, but Jesus Christ has reconciled us to Himself through His death, His burial, and His resurrection. So with that in mind, let's continue our study Today we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 24 to 29, and it's in your uh, worship folders there, so you can pull that out and read along the scripture as I read. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. And now if we back up just one verse, it's not on your handout there, but if we back up one verse to verse 23, the the previous section ends with the word minister. Paul says, Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, Paul ends that previous paragraph by saying, I preach the gospel because I was made a minister by Jesus Christ. And then that word minister kind of triggers Paul's thoughts, and he launches in to the paragraph that we are looking at today. Paul says, I'm made a minister, and then he begins describing his ministry. Now, to correct the false doctrine in Colossae, Paul has to validate his ministry to the church that they will accept what he says as being true. You know, it's one thing to say something, isn't it? But it's a totally different thing to have people accept what you say is the truth. And Paul had planted many churches all over Asia Minor, but he was not the founding pastor of this church in Colossae. So he felt it was important that somewhere in this letter he state his right to speak and his right to be heard and his right to be believed. And so, in, this, in, our, in our scripture today, Paul says, Jesus is the source of my ministry, because he's the one that made me a minister. He says, I preach Jesus because he's the subject of my ministry. He's, he's exactly what I'm preaching. And Jesus is the spirit and the power 
behind which I minister. He's my source of energy and strength as I minister. And so I'm gladly working and toiling hard and I'm suffering for Him. So Paul is validating his ministry here and that's the point of this passage. But in the context of our time together, rather than spend time breaking down what Paul says about his ministry and necessarily applying it to us, what I wanted us to do today was to focus on two verses right in the middle of this section. More than that, one vitally important phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We sang that song uh, just a few minutes ago, Christ in me, Christ in me, I won't sing it, you already heard it, <laughs> the hope of glory. That's what I want us to think about today. Our preeminence principle for today is putting Jesus first means living in hope because Christ is in me. Putting Jesus first means I know that I'm a child of God and my life reflects it. And Paul makes this profound statement. In verse 26 he says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says, the purpose of my ministry is to make known a mystery that's been hidden from the ages. And so Paul reveals a mystery of God that, that's really the difference between life and death. It's the difference between a relationship with God and just living in religion. A mystery that was foreordained before the foundation of the world that's really the fundamental focus of Christian living. And it's, the, it's really the key to putting Jesus first. A mystery. Now let's not get confused by the word mystery. Do you realize that there are things God knows that He doesn't tell us? I mean, God has secrets, right? He's God and we're not. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to God. And there are things He knows that He doesn't tell us, but then there are things He knows that He reveals to us. Secrets that he has, that he reveals to us. And so when you see the word mystery in the New Testament, it's talking about something that wasn't revealed or known by anybody in the Old Testament. But now, in the New Testament, God has revealed it to all of us, his saints. He's revealed it to you, he's revealed it to me. It's a mystery. And in the New Testament, there are several mysteries that are revealed. We're not going to go through them, but they're on your hand out there. This week you can go through those scriptures and you can uh, review some of the myst other mysteries that God has revealed in the New Testament. But the mystery that Paul is revealing in verse 27, he specifically says, is Christ in you the hope of glory. Christ in you the hope of glory. And I think there's three elements to that mystery that he's revealing that should give us pause. Number one is the revelation of Jesus Christ incarnate. The fact that Jesus Christ, God, became man in the flesh. It's an astounding mystery. And number two, Jesus not only came in the flesh, but now he lives in us through the Holy Spirit. He came in the flesh, died on the cross rose from the dead, ascended back to the Father, and now through the Holy Spirit 
lives in us. And number three, Jesus is the source of hope. The source of hope. Not only did He come in the flesh, and not only does He live in us, but He gives us unspeakable hope. There's an old church hymn out there that says, Hope for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And this word hope isn't something that, I'm, that I, I just really want it to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen or not. But it is the assurance that what God says will come to pass. When God speaks, we better listen. Because it's true. So, you know, in the Old Testament, the Jews knew that Messiah was coming. They were looking for Him. It was all prophesied throughout the Bible. But what they never really fully understood was that Messiah would not only come, but that He would live in the very bodies of His people. They had no concept that your body and my body would become the temple of God. No longer do we worship God on some hill in some building somewhere, but I'm the temple of God. You're the temple of God. Wherever you go, God is there. Why? Because He's in you. That's a profound mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I'm sure as I'm talking, I'm looking around, I'm seeing your faces. I think we probably all, most of us probably believe this to be true. But I think it's easy for us to take this for granted. Because, you know, we live on this side of the empty tomb, right? We've known nothing different. And we talk about it all the time. We've heard sermons on it. We've read it in the Bible. We've heard people talk about it. But it's easy for us to take it for granted. It's easy for this to become an ordinary concept in our lives. And so you're probably thinking right now, you know, Claude, I've been a believer a long time. I've heard this. I know this isn't something new. You're right. This isn't something new. This is a plan that was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Before God said, let there be light, He said, I'm going to live in you. You're going to be my temple. I'm going to have a personal, intimate, loving relationship with you. You know, we sing the songs and we serve in church and we do all the good stuff, but often we really just live day to day like we believe actually that God's out there somewhere. It's just another ordinary day. You know, we, we take this mystery for granted. We live lives of defeat and fear and worry and apathy. And often we respond to life not much differently than those who don't know Jesus Christ. Because we take this mystery for granted. But you know what? There's nothing ordinary. Let's think about this. There is nothing ordinary about this. Don't lose the beauty of this mystery. I don't know about you, but this, this concept, this idea just astounds me. God astounds me. And you know what? I never lose that. I never get over Jesus. He astounds me all the time. He overwhelms me with His love. I'm astounded by the fact that Jesus created everything. I'm astounded by the fact that He reveals Himself to me through His Word. Infinite God comes to small, insignificant, finite me and tells me all about himself. I'm astounded by the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth, died on a cross, was buried, rose from the dead. He took my eternal punishment. I'm astounded 
that He forgives me for all the filthy, vile rebellion and sin that's in my heart. That's astounding, isn't it, when you really think about it? Well, Paul says, let me astound you even further. Here's the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus lives in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? He's not like the Gnostic would say, some wispy little ghost floating around out there. This is God in His fullness. God is infinite, right? He is infinite. And His number is infinity. And it's not a piece of Him in you and a piece of Him in me. It's God in His fullness. You have access to God. Let's do, a little, let's do a little math problem. Who, who over here likes to do math? Probably nobody. Okay. Frog, let me give you a math problem. What is infinity divided by two? Infinity. That's right. Let me give you, let me give you a, um, a word problem. Well, I used to hate word problems, didn't you? I really didn't care when those trains met or anything like that. I just, I just didn't really care. If, if, if 7 billion born-again followers of Jesus Christ have God in them, how much God does each of them have? What is infinity divided by 7 billion? Infinity. infinity. That's right. That's, that's the point, isn't it? It's all of God. We have all of God in us. In His fullness. I love the heart of Jesus when He talks about this. This is Jesus' heart. Listen to his heart. John 14, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I am in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And he will come, and we will come to him, and what? Make our home with him. You know, you know, I'm a homebody. If you ask my wife, she'll tell you that I'm a homebody. I love home. I love everything there is about home. I just love being home. <laughs> You know, you go on a vacation and have a really great vacation. It's just great to be back home. Jen and I have been on mission trips together in India and Uganda. You know, have just wonderful times of ministry. But man, I just love to get back home. I love being home. Don't you love home? Yeah. Where do you think that love for home comes from? Everything about us comes from Jesus, right? That comes from Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus loves home too. Home is in his heart. He loves it. And you know where his home is that he loves to live? He says, if anyone loves me, keeps my word, my father will love him and we will come and what? Make our home with him. You are his home. Jesus loves being in your house. He loves living in you. Do you ever feel like God is just like far away? Like, you know, you pray and there's just no answer. You read the Bible and it's just kind of cold mashed potatoes. You're not getting anything out of it. You know, you just feel like you're so cold and alone. You ever feel like that? 
I'm preaching to the choir, right? Well, that's why we live by faith and not by feelings. Because God isn't out there somewhere. Guess where He is? He's right here. He's right at home. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, He's right there in your heart. He's not out there waiting for you to claw, claw your way up to Him some way to get better, to get your act together, to, to do better before He'll accept you. No, he's, he's as close to you as the very next breath you're going to inhale. How close is Jesus? Whew. He's that close. He's right there. It's not about rules. It's not about religion. It's not about guilt. It's not about judgment. But it's about a relationship with a personal, living, loving God who is the creator of everything that exists. He wants you to trust Him completely, love Him without restriction. All that He is, is yours. All that He has, is yours. All that He wants for you, is yours. Already. He's right there. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you know, these implica- the, the, there are some implications about this that are very important. Because if you don't believe this, you can't really put Jesus first in your life if you don't believe He's not really in your life. You know what I mean? Let's review four implications or realities of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Number one, Jesus living in me helps me overcome sin to put Jesus first. I put Jesus first by overcoming sin. James chapter 4 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. In Romans 8, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. When I put Jesus first by living like Jesus is in me, it displays his amazing grace to the world. But I can't do that very well if I'm constantly falling into sin, can I? I make Jesus look small and insignificant if I can't overcome sin in my life. Jesus says, I'll forgive you. And I'll make my home in you. You know, Jesus didn't sign a month-to-month lease on your heart. I mean, he paid the entire debt. He's not renting space. He bought the mortgage. He owns the house. He's paid the bill. He's moved in. And he's not planning on leaving anytime soon. Aren't you glad of that? And now the Holy Spirit is in there. And guess what he's doing? He's redecorating. He's making his place to live. And the first thing he does is he kills that desire to sin. Have you ever struggled with a habit or an action or an attitude that you know Jesus wants you to change? A sin area in your life and you fight it and you struggle with it but you can't seem to overcome it? I think sometimes, you know, sometimes we just prefer the sin but sometimes I think we don't believe we can win the battle. We don't believe we can win. And so we struggle and we fight and we don't seem to overcome. But let me remind you about something. At some point in the past, Jesus said, let there be light. Bam! Light. There was no questions. He was. And that same Jesus that said, let there be light, says, I'm going to come and live inside you. I'm going to be your resource. 
I can't overcome sin in my life? Really? Seriously? James says, if I submit to God, I can resist the devil and he runs. And he's not talking here about white-knuckle Christian living. You know what I'm talking about, where you struggle and you fight and you're trying so hard to do better and it just doesn't seem to work and you're hanging on and your knuckles are just white. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about submitting to God. Submitting to God means I know that Christ is in me and He's my only hope of victory. And He'll live through me if I relinquish control to Him. Because remember, you're not submitting to a God who's out there. You're submitting to a God that's right here. He's right here in your heart. You don't need to cry, oh God, come and help me, because He's already here, ready, willing, and able. And James says, yield your control, your desires, and your wants, and the devil will run. But Claude, I thought I had to fight the devil. I had to fight through this. How does submission help me put the devil on the run? Let's think about it. When Jesus was here on this earth, and he encountered demonic spirits, what happened? Those guys go, hey, Jesus, come on, buddy. Bring it on. Let's, let's duke it out. Uh, they cried and whined like little girls, didn't they? Yeah. They said, Jesus, why are you here? You're not supposed to be here yet. It's not, it's not time for you. Go away. Leave us alone. Don't hurt me. Well, you know, the same Jesus that caused demons to quiver when he was here is the same Jesus that lives in you. And when Satan flees from you, it's not because he's afraid of you, but it's because he's scared to death of Jesus. And it's pretty hard for him to tempt you when he's running for his life. Submit to God, and the devil will flee from you. Paul says we're free from the law of sin and death. Another reality of this mystery is that Jesus lives in us. He not only replaces my desire to sin, but he gives me a hunger for holiness. Jesus living in me helps me live holy to put Jesus first. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in death, we shall be certainly be united with him in resurrection. Paul's very clear here that when Jesus moves in, things change. Things change. When Jesus Christ came into my life, the Holy Spirit transformed me, and I'm a different man. I can't define it, I can't quantify it, I can't put a formula on it and explain it. All I can do is tell you I know it's true. He took away my desire, he, he works to take away that desire to sin and fill it with the desire to be holy. Can you say Jesus has transformed you in that way? You know what I'm talking about. The mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, is not a message of, please people, just try to do better. Just buy a book or do a study and just try to work hard and do better. No. The message is that the Lord of lords, the creator God of everything that holds the universe together, that he lives in you. And he has hope and he gives you hope. 
that you can overcome sin and hunger for holiness. And that's the truth, and that's who you are right now, today, in Jesus' name. Amen? A third reality of this mystery that, that I think equips us to put Jesus first is Jesus living in me helps me overcome guilt to put Jesus first. You know, I talk to a lot of Christians that say, Pastor Claude, you know, I know God forgives me, but I just, I just can't forgive myself. Have you ever said that? you ever heard somebody say that? So we live defeated lives bound by our own guilt, bound by our own sin. But you realize when you say that what that really means? You're saying one of two things. You're saying either God doesn't forgive me because obviously he still wants a pound of flesh in retribution. Or you're saying I know better than God. I know God forgives me, but I've sinned and I've done too many bad things. I'm too horrible to really be forgiven. I really know better than God. But what does God say about it? God says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When God says forgiven, what does He mean? Forgiven. He no longer condemns. He's at peace. We're at peace with Him. There's no more war. When Jesus died on the cross, He paid for all our sin. And His plan is that when we come to Him, and this is His plan, not my plan, not your plan. When we come to Him in repentance and believe His gospel, trusting Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, to be the payment for our sin, that He accepts us and He forgives us. And this is so important. I know we, 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 we throw this concept around, there's no condemnation. But it's so important for us to grasp and not lose the wonder and the amazement of this. Because if I think I owe some extra measure of punishment or repentance, what I will do is I'll pull back from that joyful, loving, open relationship that Jesus Christ desires to have in me. He's living in my house, but I don't talk to him. I ignore him because I'm ashamed or I feel guilty. And so it's not that I, it's like, you know, I, I don't hate Jesus. I love him, but I'm just not talking to him. Well, you know that that's an act of hostility. That's being hostile to God. He says we're at peace with him and here you are declaring war. How is that hostility? If I invited you over to my house for dinner... And we're sitting there around the table and you're trying to talk to me and I'm eating and just ignoring you, not saying anything to you. And then after dinner we go into the family room and, and I hop on Facebook and I'm on, on Facebook for a couple hours and I don't talk to you, I don't respond to you, we don't talk. You're probably going to get a little bit upset with me. You're probably going to think I'm being hostile towards you, aren't you? And that is. That's a form of hostility. I'm ignoring you. And so often we do that to Jesus. Remember, it's not about rules or religion. It's about a relationship. And we ignore Him. And so we don't talk to Him in prayer. We don't listen to what He says. Jesus says, I've moved in. I'm in you and I give you hope. Jesus gives us the power to overcome sin. Jesus gives us the power to live holy. Jesus gives us the power to let go of that false guilt and just accept who He is and accept His love. In freedom. And finally, Jesus lives in me 
fills me with a deep sense of joy and confidence in him to put Jesus first. And this is, this is a big one. Paul in verse 24 says, I rejoice. He starts this passage off with I rejoice. And remember, he's writing from prison. Paul's saying, I, I'm in prison and I'm rejoicing. How can you be rejoicing when you're in prison? That seems like a pretty bad place to be. But Paul's joy wasn't based on what Jesus, what, what his circumstances were. His joy was based on what Jesus had already done. Exactly. You know, we've looked in, first, uh, in, in the first chapter of Colossians at several verses, and Jesus has already done so much for us. Verse 16 says he created us, created us given us life. Verses 21 to 22 says He's cleansed us and He's reconciled us into relationship with Him. And verse 24 says that He, or 25, He's called us to His service, giving our lives purpose and meaning. Our joy is perpendicular, not horizontal, right? He's our joy. And the joy comes from the hope or the assurance that He's walking with me through the trial. How do you know he's walking with you? Where is he? Yeah, he's right there. He's not out there. He's right there. You know, I tell people all the time, it's better to know one verse and do it than know the entire Bible and not obey it. So as you put Jesus first this week, let me give you one verse to know and do. Now this verse is really about Messiah when he comes, about his day. But since he came that day, every day has been a good day. Psalm 118, 24 says, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. If you can't do anything else, rejoice. No matter the circumstance or trouble or pain, rejoice because Jesus made this day just for you. He gives you both physical and spiritual life. Remember that without Jesus, you don't even exist. So not only do you not have the life that you have now, even though it has trouble in it, but you don't have the life you hope to have without Jesus. Life's hard. And we all know that. Things don't always work out like we plan, like we want. Circumstances can be really tough. But we don't have to let circumstances define who we are. Now, I'm not saying that I'm happy with the trouble. I'm doing the happy dance because my house burnt down. But what I am saying is the joy of Jesus, Christ in me, gives me the right perspective that I know, that I trust Him. I am one of His kids. Right, Tanya? Amen. I trust His plan. I trust His provision. I trust His purpose in my life. Isaiah 66, Paul says, or says, call, Isaiah 66, God calls us to be humble. And you know, Paul could rejoice because he realized that he had already received all that he deserved. And anything else he received was just joy, even suffering. Because in his, in, in humbleness, we can say that even though things aren't just the way they are, if I were honest, I don't even deserve what I already have. Because what I deserve is to be in hell forever. But what I've got is Jesus in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Paul says something in verse 24 that's kind of hard to understand. But when you understand what he's saying, it, it makes sense. 
He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is the church. Paul's not saying here that Jesus' death on the cross was somehow incomplete, that salvation's work wasn't completed by Jesus, and that we have to somehow suffer to finish the process. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that I'm receiving abuse in this prison that was intended for Jesus Christ. And let's think about it. When Jesus ascended back to the Father and was here no longer, his enemies were still angry with him. They still hated him. And so where did their rage turn to? To to us, to those that love Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you know what? If Jesus could take my eternal sin, my eternal punishment to his cross... I can survive a few punches to the face for him. I rejoice in suffering for Jesus Christ because I've already received more than I deserve. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We struggle for significance in this life. We we long to be heard. We fight for respect and value. We lust after material things that are never going to satisfy But Paul says that this mystery that's been hidden for the ages is now revealed. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're not just forgiven by His Spirit, but we're brought into a precious union and relationship with Him. So the hope of glory is that today through His power, today through His power, I can live a sin-defeating, holy obedient False, guilt-rejecting, joyful life. Amen. That's today. And then tomorrow, I have a bright hope for tomorrow. And that hope, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Colossians, Corinthians, those are tough to say. Chapter 13, he says, now I'm looking through a glass dark. I'm looking through a smoky glass. Today's coming when I'm going to see him face to face. I have hope for victory today, and I have hope for a bright future tomorrow. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Why should I be afraid? Christ in me, the hope of glory. This week, I want you to ask yourselves these questions. Why should I be afraid? Christ is in me, the hope of glory. Why should I be worrying about anything? Christ in me, the hope of glory. Why am I letting the devil ring my doorbell? Why don't I send Jesus to answer the door? Christ in me, the hope of glory. As you uh, work to put Jesus first in your life and as you submit to Him this week, I want to encourage you to let yourself be amazed by this loving Jesus who is in you. Don't lose the wonder. This is not just an ordinary day. Whatever's holding you back from total abandonment with Jesus, just let go. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Let's pray together. Jesus, I just thank you that more than anything else, this is your plan. That you came and gave your life for us and you rose from the dead. And now through the Holy Spirit, you live in us in your fullness. There's no lack when it comes to you. 
You are the power source that we can overcome sin in our lives and live holy lives, putting you first in every area of our lives, living in joy no matter the circumstance, no matter how hard life might be. Jesus, I thank you and I praise your holy name for that. May you be glorified in us today and may we put you first by living Christ in me, the hope of glory. Amen.